Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. We today find ourselves in the beginning of what will likely be a several months journey. It'll probably take us through the end of the year and into the springtime, uh, I think. We are going to be in the the gospel according to Mark, and we start today in Mark chapter 1. Now, if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, I know a majority of you are probably within the past year or two, but if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, about four and a half years ago, we started a series through the gospel of Mark, and we got to about halfway, and a couple things came up that we needed to teach on, and then I kind of got honestly sort of sidetracked, and we never actually got back to it. And so... Uh, it's been in the back of my mind to get back to the Gospel of Mark, to finish it up. And instead of picking back up where we left off four and a half years ago, because I'm under no illusion that, you know, we, we kind of remember that, I think it would be better. I've grown as a preacher, Lord willing, I hope, and I think we've grown as a congregation spiritually. I think it would be uh, beneficial for us just to reset and go back to Mark chapter 1. You may ask, why the Gospel of Mark? Well, um, uh, of course, all of the scriptures are breathed out by God and profitable, But Mark, to me, has a a sort of special appeal, probably because it's sort of the least popular of the Gospels. You know, Matthew and Luke are longer and have the narratives of the birth of Jesus. And John is, in particular, uh, sort of different in that it deals more philosophically against Greek philosophies of who Jesus is. But Mark is actually the shortest of the Gospels. Many scholars think it was probably the first written of the Gospels and was used as a sort of source document for the other Gospel writers. That's a bit of speculation. And it's it's short. It's it's sort of hard-hitting, and it's only 16 chapters. In fact, you could read the Gospel of Mark through in probably one hour. It's written by Mark, who is the ministry associate of the Apostle Peter. And so that's important. That's it gets its authority in the early church, and the reason it's in the Bible today is because it comes through the authority of Peter, one of the 12 disciples. You know that all of the New Testament books, all of them have carry with them apostolic authority. That's how they made it into the Bible. You know there's lots of books that were written in the New Testament time, just like there's lots of books that are written today. And in the early years of the church, they had to think about which books would actually make it into the canon of the Bible, or what we know of as the Bible today. And so 27 books make it into the New Testament. And one of sort of the proofs for a book to make it into the New Testament that this church formed, of course, all of this is happening through the superintending guidance of the Holy Spirit. We know that, but it's working itself out through people, church leaders actually making decisions. And one of the primary reasons a book would make it into the New Testament is because it would come through the hand or the pen of one of the apostles, one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. Now, Mark was not one of the 12 apostles like, uh, like Matthew was or like John was, but he is a ministry associate of the apostle Peter. He's like Peter's assistant. So in, in a sense, uh, this account of the life of Jesus is Peter's account flowing through Mark. And so Mark makes it into the Bible uh, because it is under the authority of, of Peter. It's a quick gospel. It's hard-hitting. It's written to Christians that lived in Rome in the first century that were under the rule of the emperor Nero, who was a despot, who was, who was punishing Christians. Many wicked stories about how he persecuted Christians. And so Mark is where we find ourselves. So let me do this. Let me read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Then I'm going to pray, and, and then we're going to work our way through uh, who Mark was a little bit in the scriptures. That's where we'll go to Acts. And then, uh, then I have four things that I, I think we, we want to learn from this, these eight verses today. So let me read them, and then, uh, then we'll begin. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we, uh, as we now settle into these next few months in the gospel according to Mark, uh, Lord, we know that all Scripture is breathed out by you. We know that some Christians um, think that you can only pay attention to the red letters that are recorded Jesus' words. And they unwittingly and unwisely pit Jesus' recorded spoken words against Paul's words or against the Old Testament. And Lord, we know that's not true because we know that the author of Paul and the author of Mark and the author of all of the writers of the scripture is you. All scripture is breathed out by God. But Lord, we do know that in a special way the gospels give us this opportunity to encounter not just doctrine or propositional truths about Jesus, but to encounter the God-man in the flesh. Father, I pray that as we work our way through Mark that Lord, you would, you would give each of us, whether we are believers in Jesus already and followers of him, or whether, and I'm sure there are people that fit this category, whether we are not yet believers in Jesus, I pray that we would all encounter Jesus afresh and that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that we would be amazed that the man that we are reading about is no mere moral teacher, but he is God in the flesh. I pray that this would humble us and amaze us and cause us to worship. And I pray that the Christians in this room would, would be, uh, again, Lord, their affections would be stirred, not for a set of beliefs merely called Christianity, but for God himself in the flesh, Jesus. And Lord, I pray for people in this room and those that will come over these coming months as we work through Mark that do not yet know Jesus. Lord, would you be so kind to cause them to pass from death to life. Lord, would you use your word, would you use the good news about Jesus to bring life to their heart and give them the gift of repentance and faith so that they will turn away from themselves and trust in Jesus. And Lord, I pray these things for your glory and for the joy of your people and for the benefit and the salvation of the lost. I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you hold your place there in Mark, skip ahead to, to Acts, which is to the right. So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. So who is this young guy named Mark, who's the writer of this gospel? Let's just orient ourselves a little bit to his life. There's not much said about him in the Bible, uh, but we do know a few things about him in uh, the account of Acts that Luke writes. Luke is the, the gospel writer, and he writes kind of a two-volume set, one being Luke, and then a sort of part two, which is then the Acts of the Apostles. And we read in the early church in Acts chapter 12, where the early church is being persecuted. James is killed. Peter's imprisoned. And as a sort of safe house, we read in Acts chapter 12. You don't necessarily need to look at all these scriptures, but just I want you to, we're going to settle down here for a second in Acts chapter 15. But in Acts chapter 12 is the first place where we find Mark mentioned. And it's in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. Where it says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. Doesn't it seem like every woman in the New Testament is named Mary? <laughs> well, this is not Jesus' mother or Mary Magdalene. This is just another Mary. And in order to identify who this Mary was compared to all of the other Marys in the New Testament, there's this little identifier put on her. And she is Mary, the mother of John, which would be his, Greek, which would be his Jewish name, 
whose other name was Mark, which would be his Roman name. And so that's the first mention we get here. It's just kind of ironic, isn't it, that he's mentioned there. And he's mentioned there for a reason, because we know that later on he's going to factor in prominently. He's going to be one of the gospel writers. And so then in Acts chapter 13, we see where Paul and Barnabas, the two early missionaries of the Christian church, take Mark along with them on one of their missionary journeys. And so what's happened is all of these Christians are starting to gather. The gospel is going forth, and uh, people are becoming Christians, and they start to gather in a little hub called Antioch, the city of Antioch, which is the place where they first were called Christians. And in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, we read there, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod and the Tetrarch, and Saul, who would then become Paul. And so what's happening in Antioch is all of these gifted Christians are getting together, but God doesn't just want gifted Christians to sort of hang out together, so he starts to scatter them and send them out. And, and that's a lesson for us. I mean, we, we want not just to kind of go and have all of the stuff here at Crosspoint. We want to we we want to be a church that sends people. We want to plant churches around the world. We want to plant churches in Columbus. We don't want to just to see how big we can get. We want to spread a passion for the glory of God wherever we go. And that's what's happening here in this early church. Saul and Barnabas are now being sent off. And so in verse 4 it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, chapter 13, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And this John is John Mark that we read about in Acts chapter 12, whose mother was named Mary, okay? And so we also read somewhere else that he happens to be the cousin of Barnabas. So this early little missionary team of Paul and Barnabas take with them an assistant named John Mark, who happens to be Barnabas' cousin. Now verse, skip down to verse 13 of chapter 13, and it says, now Paul, they're not going to sail, um, they're going to go away now, they're going to take the gospel away from that place and spread the gospel throughout the whole Roman Empire. Now Paul and his companions, which would be Barnabas and John Mark and maybe some other folks that were helping, set sail for Paphos and came to Persia of Pamphylia, and John, listen, this is significant, John, meaning John Mark, the writer of our gospel, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. We don't really know why he left. He just left. There's no other sort of comment or observation about that, but we know that John left them. And now we go to Acts chapter 15. Go to Acts chapter 15, the end of the chapter, verse 36. Again, we're, we're figuring out who this John Mark is. Mark, the gospel writer. Okay, so now Paul and Barnabas sail. John Mark has left them. Now they continue to take the gospel, go through several years of missionary work. And at the end of Acts chapter 15, verse 36, it says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas, in verse 37, it says, Wanted to take with them John called Mark. Remember, we had just read that John left them on their earlier journey. Verse 38, but Paul thought best not to take with him the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So we, 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 we realize right away that there's a dispute. In fact, that's what it says there in verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark, or John Mark, his cousin, with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So, so that gives us a clue that Paul was upset with John Mark. And evidently, John Mark didn't just leave for some commendable reason. But John Mark left. He, he in a sense, deserted Paul and Barnabas. At least that's what Paul's interpretation of the events were. And so Mark now, at this particular scene in the New Testament timeline, is a deserter. He's a failure, and Paul is so against him coming back on board with him and Barnabas that he even lets it break up their partnership and says, no, if you're going to bring your little deserting cousin back with you, I'm going to go this way, you go this way. That's not the end of the story for, for John Mark. Flip ahead to 2 Timothy chapter 4, which is towards the end of the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 4, years have passed now. 
Paul is at the end of his life in prison awaiting the uh, likely execution of the Roman leaders. And this is what Paul says as he's passing out instructions to Timothy at the end of his life. Verse 9 of chapter 4, 2 Timothy. He says, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Verse 11, Luke alone is with me. And then listen to this. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. The same John Mark, who a decade or so before, Paul was so upset with that he said, no, no, if this cat's coming back on board, he deserted this before. Uh, you go that way, Barnabas, and take your wimpy cousin. I'm going this way, and I'm taking Silas. And now we find at the end of Paul's life, we find John Mark, Mark, restored into fellowship. Why, why do I take the time to even go through this? Because we need to, before we even think about Mark, we need to realize that the man that God chose to write one of the Gospels is a former failure deserter restored to the grace of God. We, we need to take that in. God used a failed deserter to be one of the Gospel writers. And so he sets the story of the gospel of grace. And he mediates it. He writes it through somebody who wasn't unacquainted with that very grace. And so now we look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. There's four things that I want to tell you. In fact, uh, you just give the outline. I'm just going to rattle off the four points. Nothing here. This is not rocket science. This is, these, are four, I mean, you, these are four points that my seven-year-old daughter could have come up with. I'm not saying maybe she didn't when we consulted yesterday on this passage. There's four things I want you to look at in these first, what I want us to look at. One is that Jesus is God. Two is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Three is that Jesus is the gospel. And the fourth thing that I want us to think about is that we should prepare the way. The scripture calls us to prepare the way for Jesus. Okay, let's look at verse 1. Back to... Point number one, Jesus is God. Verse one of what Mark writes. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, let's look at that title. He says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus was not an unfamiliar name in first century Jewish culture. It literally meant God is our salvation. It would be the same as Joshua in the Old Testament. Many young men were named Jesus, but that's not all that Mark calls him. He calls him Jesus the Christ, which is a word that means the anointed, the Messiah, and which is giving him now this title that is setting in the minds of first century Jewish people that Jesus is the one that is coming to save them. But there's something really, really important that we've got to realize when we look at this idea of Messiah in the Gospels is that for most Jews in the New Testament times, when they think of Messiah, they're not thinking of Messiah in the grand global universal sense, in the spiritual sense that we are today with 2,000 years of the benefit of history. They're thinking of a sort of political savior, a political rescuer that will come and rescue them from the authority of Roman rule. So Mark calls him Jesus the Messiah, but then he calls him the Son of God. Nobody would have given a man that title. So right off the first sentence, Mark is like firing like a, he's firing a cannon across the bow of the ship and he's saying that the one that we're dealing with here, the one that I'm about to write with, isn't just some mere man or some moral teacher. He, in the first sentence, is claiming a title. He's claiming a divinity. He's claiming that Jesus is God. Now, again, we, we have very, it's very difficult for us to feel the weight of that because we grow up in a culture thinking that and sort of accepting the fact that, okay, we, we, we know that. Even if we don't believe that, we know that that's what Christianity believes. And so we've never had to wrestle with this idea that the Jesus that is spoken of in this story is not just a man, but he's God. But try and transport yourself back into the first century to think of this concept that's right now coming across your horizon that 
that this man isn't just a man, but he's God. It's offensive, and it's news, and it's what Mark starts his gospel with. There's two, I think, just very important implications for this for the first century readers in Rome and for for us today. The implication, number one, of that Jesus is God is his authority. He has all authority over Rome, over evil spirits. Over sickness, in fact, that's what the first couple chapters of Mark are all about, showing Jesus' authority over sickness, over sin, over demonic forces. And if he has all authority, he has the authority to forgive sin, which we see in Mark chapter 2, which we'll go over in a couple weeks, which would have been scandalous that anybody, any man that we actually saw in the flesh, how can he have the authority? I mean, yeah, I'll grant that he's a, wise teacher, but are you telling me that he has the authority to forgive sin? Only God has the authority to forgive sin. And if he has the authority to forgive sin, and this is what, this is the other side of the coin that we don't like to think of much. If he has the authority to forgive sin, then he also has the authority to judge sin and condemn for sin. So he's not just sort of like a, a good benevolent, like, uh, uh, lovesick deity up in heaven who's like plucking a four-leaf clover, hoping that you know we will turn and trust in Him. He's He's also a righteous, holy God, who who judges those who do not turn and trust in Him. Who's no mere moral helper, which is kind of what most of modern Christianity boils Him down to be. He's not just that; He's God. And the implication number two of the fact that Jesus is God, and this is so important. That Jesus is God in the flesh. And next week when we look at his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness, just a few short verses there, we're going to really dig into the idea of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is so important. And we're going to allude to it here is that the fact that Jesus is God is so important because it means that he is actually able to save us. You see, the great heir of all the cults that have developed over the centuries, whether it be the Arians in the early centuries that denied the deity of Jesus and other cults that denied the humanity of Jesus, even today where we find Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons that deny the deity of Jesus, the problem with them when you pull away the deity of Jesus, when you pull away the fact that Jesus is fully God, is you pull away his ability to fully save. So so that's why it's so important that we understand who Jesus is, and Mark is making that point here. And so you say, wait a minute, why why, why does it pull away his ability to save? Because the one who died, the one who absorbed God's holiness on the cross is not just a mere man or a man that was souped up and became a god. It was God himself who died for us. This is what J.C. Ryle, uh, you guys know I like him. I refer to him often. He was a British theologian and pastor in the 1800s. We sell a couple books by him in the Resource Center. One is called Thoughts for Young Men, which is excellent. It's older language, but man, it's amazing how what was written 150 years ago by J.C. Ryle can be so applicable to young men today who waste their lives on pettiness. J.C. Ryle, as you know, had a really cool long beard, which I think is just awesome. Google J.C. Ryle. And uh, just look at a picture of his beard, which will be, I think, in some degree edifying for you. But this is what, <laughs> this is what J.C. Ryle says. Listen to this now. This is, this is, this is why, you've got to know this. Like you're thinking, Brad, I know Jesus is God. But, but so many Christians accept that fact, but they don't know why it's so important. Because if you pull away or if you, or if you don't understand it's important, you're susceptible to, to error. And that error is damnable error because we need to know that the Bible, one of the central truths of the Bible is the divinity, the godness of Jesus. Everything rests on the fact that, that it wasn't just a good man that died for us. It was God that died for us. This is what J.C. Ryle says. He says, and I love this British language, the way they talk. I just want to sit and listen to British people. I've been watching like some of those other channels uh, of the Olympics, not the NBC channel, but some of their other ones where they have the British announcers and just, oh, love it. This is what he says. There is a beautiful fitness in placing this truth in the very beginning of the gospel, meaning that Jesus is not just a good man or a great man or a moral teacher, but he's in fact God himself. 
The divinity of Christ is the citadel and keep of Christianity. Here lies the infinite value of the satisfaction he made upon the cross. Here lies the peculiar merit of his astonishing, of his atoning death for sinners. That death was not the death of a mere man like ourselves, but of one who is over all God blessed forever. We need not wonder that the sufferings of one person were a sufficient sufficient propitiation for the sins of the world when we remember that he who suffered was the Son of God. Let believers cling to this doctrine with jealous watchfulness. With it, they stand upon a rock. Without it, they have nothing solid beneath their feet. Our hearts are weak. Our sins are many. We need a Redeemer who is able to save to the uttermost and deliver us from the wrath to come. We have such a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. He is the mighty God. And so right away, Mark sets everything that he's going to write in this context of who he's writing about. And it's Jesus, the Son of God, who is God in the flesh. Secondly, a thing I think we need to realize from this is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Mark, in his opening lines in verses 2 and 3, he says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, for some of you that might be kind of studious and wonder, Brad, actually, isn't that kind of a quote also from Malachi? And there's a little bit of Exodus in there. So why does he say that just Isaiah is the Bible wrong? Oh, no, my world's falling apart. No, it was common Jewish uh, tradition when you were combining several sources or quoting several sources to just cite the most prominent one. And Isaiah would be the most prominent. And so what... Uh, Mark is doing here is he's bringing together several Old Testament verses telling us about the ministry of John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, about what his ministry is going to be. And he's saying that there's this one coming before Jesus who's going to prepare the way for Jesus. And John the Baptist is, 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 has this ministry where he's, he's coming now to prepare the road for Jesus, to prepare the hearts of the people. And he compares him to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. That's why if you're not super familiar with the Old Testament, and you're like, why, why, would, why would he say there in verse 6 that uh, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts with wild honey? Like, man, I was keyed in. I was going to start paying attention. Now you got this weirdo? <laughs> no, no, that, that's not just sort of out there to talk about how John was weird. That's That camel's hair, that cloth of camel's hair, would be Old Testament prophets' clothing. And, and that is a direct description of Elijah in the Old Testament, this great prophet who Jews knew never died. Actually, you know, Elijah's one of the few people that actually, he, he doesn't die. He is just sort of taken up by God in the Old Testament and, and kings. And so there's this expectation in the Jewish mind that Elijah would come back, like actually Elijah... And that when Elijah came back, he would be the forerunner of the Messiah, of God, coming to rescue his people. And that's exactly what happens. In this case, it's not actually Elijah, but it's John the Baptist who is a new Elijah. He's a New Testament type of Elijah who's now coming like Elijah, dressed like Elijah, from the wilderness like Elijah, eating locusts and honey like Elijah, now setting everything in the context of who's behind me is not just some moral teacher, but whose coming is the one who's mightier than I, God himself. Jesus tells us in his later life that the whole Old Testament is about him. In John chapter 5, he says that the scriptures testify about me. In Luke chapter 24, take some time to read Luke chapter 24, the road to Emmaus this afternoon. It's amazing. Jesus, post-resurrection, shows up, kind of disguises himself from two disciples, saddles up to them on the seven mile walk to Emmaus. Can you imagine being one of those two guys? Jesus shows up next to you, asks you what's going on. They kind of go, I don't know, man, there's this one Jesus that we were following. Some people say he rose again, and now we don't know what to do. The tomb is empty. And Jesus, for the next seven miles, it says in Luke chapter 24, explains from the beginning from Moses, which means the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, all the way through the prophets, explains everything to them about himself from the Old Testament to them. Can you imagine being those two guys? I mean, like information overload. Ah. Jesus unpacks 
the Old Testament and shows how it's all about him to you in seven miles. Big fire hose, little mouth. Can you imagine drinking from that faucet? And so what Jesus is saying is that the whole Old Testament is about me. So friends, don't make this common mistake that a lot of people make as they sort of pit the Old Testament against the new, right? It's a hallmark of liberal Christianity. They just kind of look at this Old Testament. They don't really read it. They don't think about it. And they sort of see these occasions where God purges this whole land of foreign peoples like in Joshua. Or God punishes people and it seems kind of harsh and severe. But what we see in the Old Testament is really God in graciousness and long-suffering pleading with his people to turn from their sin and trust in him. And time after time when they don't, he does judge them. And still, even then, he still rescues them from their sin. And the whole Old Testament is just a picture of how God is forming for himself a people so that he can make this people a light for himself to the nation. The Old Testament is not pitted against the New Testament. Don't make that mistake. And Jesus, in fact, says that the Old Testament isn't just a collection of stories about an angry God, but all of it is pointing towards me. And so God raises up Moses to be this deliverer as a sort of picture of Christ. God rescues his people from Egyptian slavery to be a picture of how he rescues us from spiritual slavery to sin. God raises up David to be a king and ruler because Jesus isn't just a savior. He's our king. God raises up prophets to call us back to God. God gives wisdom in the Proverbs. God gives devotion in the Psalms. And all of this is to point us towards Christ and to trust in Him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so, before we move on to the last two truths, quickly, why is this even important? You're like, okay, Brad, good Bible lesson. I got you. Old Testament Testament sort of points to the New Testament. That's fine. But, you know, it's still kind of boring. I don't really want to read Leviticus. I, I feel you. I got you. I've been there too. But do you see why this is so important and why it is so good for us to work our way through the Old Testament and see how it points to Jesus and why Mark even takes the time to quote from Isaiah? It's set against this picture of God that Mark wants to give us. The implication is that from the beginning, God has been preparing for a new beginning in Jesus. You see, what happened in the beginning of the New Testament era in the Gospels is not that God sort of got frustrated with his Old Testament plan and says, ah, gosh, it didn't really work out, so let me just kind of start again. Jesus, you're going to have to go down there. That's not what is happening in the biblical storyline. From the beginnings, from before the foundations of the universe, the Lamb was slain, the Bible says, and the whole point of the Old Testament is to produce a people that will long for Jesus, in fact, to give the law so that they will long for Jesus, to to produce in people an expectation of God's salvation. In fact, the very reason that God even allows sin, I mean, do you think evil snuck up on God? Like, like, do you think that God made everything and, and then it just sort of snuck up on him? He says, oh, man, what are we going to do? Let's try some law, tablets, Moses, fire, serpent, blood, Nile River. Well, that didn't really work. Jesus, you're going to have to do it. Take three. Jesus, go. No, that's not. Everything has happened according to the plan of God. And the Old Testament is pointing towards the plan of God. And the New Testament is pointing back towards it. In the picture of Jesus' work on the cross. And so why is this important in my life? It's important because if God works the monumental effort of fulfilling prophecy and dealing with seeming never-ending rebellion of his people, then certainly he can superintend the minute details of my life. I mean, if he can bring some 300 prophecies to fulfillment in the life of Jesus, if he can harden the hearts of pagan kings so that they do his will unwittingly, then I can look at that and say that God God can superintend my heart as well. That's what Romans 8.28, God works all things together for the good of those who love God and are calling according to his purpose. That truth isn't just meant to be a sort of standalone sort of truth that we're supposed to accept. We accept it against the backdrop of the whole Bible and what God is doing in Jesus in the Old Testament and the New. Point number three, quickly. Jesus is 
God, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, and Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is the announcement that the king is here, that he's, he's here, and Jesus is the king. The gospel is not just a set of truths or even a collection of good doctrine or a, like a four-step prayer that we pray to secure our eternal destiny. It's the person of Jesus. Mark is not announcing a new religion or a new set of beliefs. He is announcing a person. When you see that word gospel, I want us to see it through this gospel of Mark as as the announcement that Jesus has broken into the darkness. It's the inbreaking of the salvation of God. The king is here. That's the good news. Not that the king from on high has decided to sort of heal us or save us or make our lives a little bit better. It's that Jesus is actually here. And Jesus has set up his kingdom in part now. And this is to understand the Bible and understand the New Testament. I think you have to kind of get this idea that Jesus has established his rule and reign on earth already, but he hasn't fully consummated it yet like he will when he comes the second time in all glory and so we live in these the bible calls them last days and the last days aren't just like 1984 and on when george orwell wrote a book or whatever the, the last days have been since jesus rose again and ascended to heaven until he comes back again and the, the time we find ourselves in is when jesus the king has come the gospel has been announced jesus is here to save and to restore and to bring glory to himself through his people. And now we're sort of waiting for this time when he comes back again to fully and finally vanquish evil forever. And he has allowed for this gap between his first and second coming for the reason to bring glory to himself and more people to trust in him. Think of it this way. I read this in a book just this past week and I thought it was excellent. Think of ourselves as like a citizens of a, of a foreign hostile nation, which we all are, spiritually. We're citizens of a foreign, hostile nation, this world, this fallen kingdom of the world. And in the coming of Jesus in the Gospels that we read about, we'll read about in Mark, Jesus has come and set up a sort of embassy, an embassy in the middle of the hostile foreign kingdom. Think of like the American embassy, you know, and the old Soviet USSR, and I'm not pitting like, you know, oh, forget that. Let me forget that. I don't want to offend anybody that might be from that part of the country or maybe whatever, so just forget that. Just let's stay with the hostile nation and then the good nation, okay? I know that'll just mess somebody up. And, and so Jesus has come, and he has established this embassy, the kingdom of God here. In fact, he says that in the middle way through chapter 1. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so now we live in this time where the kingdom of God has not fully been established in the universe because evil still to some degree reigns. But Jesus has established this embassy in our hearts and in this world called the church. And all who are in this hostile nation, this hostile foreign nation, if they will just come to the, assemb- to the embassy, they receive asylum, right? I mean, if you're an American living in a foreign land, if you're an American living in some place that is evil or hostile or dangerous, once you get Past the gates of the American embassy, you are safe, man. There's some Marines with a round locked and loaded in the chamber pointing at whoever is chasing you. And it's in that embassy that you are safe. And what Jesus has done in coming is he has established an embassy. But you see, this embassy isn't some sort of citadel with no windows. This embassy is supposed to be a city set on a hill, as it says in Matthew, to shine the light of the glory of the king, the king of the kingdom that is coming, the king of the kingdom, the future kingdom of the glory and restoration of God that is coming. And whoever come into this embassy receive peace, they receive asylum, they receive pardon, and they're not supposed to just stay in that embassy, they're supposed to go back out into the foreign hostile nation calling all people to come to that embassy so that they too might receive peace. And since 
The gospel since the life of Jesus here on this earth until this day, that embassy has been slowly growing and growing and growing. And the world has been getting more and more wicked. Friends, that's why these are the best of times and these are the worst of times. The fallen kingdom is getting worse and worse and worse, but the, the kingdom of our Lord on this earth is growing and growing. So there's like a, like a divergent graph. The world's getting worse, but, but the church here on this earth is getting better and growing and growing. And the embassy that Jesus came to establish is the gospel, the good news that the king is here. Come, come and receive asylum. And that's what Mark is announcing here. Not a new doctrine that you have to follow. Not a new little thing that you have to do because you can't do it. He's saying, come, come to where the king is and find refuge. So all this leaves us with our fourth point, which is to what John the Baptist's message was, which was to prepare the way. Prepare the way. Friends, that's the whole point of the Old Testament. To prepare the way. That's the whole point of the law of the Old Testament. Do you realize that? I don't think that the law of God, like the Ten Commandments and the other 600 or so regulations that fit into that, were ever meant to succeed in the sense that we would actually, God was hoping that we would actually obey them all perfectly. Now, in a real sense, the law, the whole Old Testament is given to show us our failure and need for Christ. And John is like the last Old Testament prophet saying, repent, repent, repent. The king is coming. Soften your hearts. Repent. The kingdom, the king is coming. Prepare your hearts. But here's the deal about the Old Testament message, and here's actually the deal about John's message too, is that John is telling us to do something that we cannot do. And that's the whole point of the law. It's the whole point of the prophets. It's the whole point of John's message. In the plan of God, God is telling us to do something to prepare our hearts that we cannot do. And what he's doing in that is not playing games with us, friends. He's setting us up for the grace of the gospel that we're going to read about in the life of Jesus. You say, Brad, I don't get you to explain that to me. There was this old Scottish minister, and they used to call him Rabbi Duncan. He lived back in the 1700s, and they called him Rabbi Duncan because he had a particular ministry to Jews. And he preached a message and wrote a book called Rich Gleanings. And he said about the gospel and he framed it so beautifully he said that the message of the gospel is that we cannot come but we must in fact that's the message of the old testament obey this law but you're going to fail it's the message of john the baptist repent but you can't so why would god tell us to do something that we can't do why would he give us a law that he knows we can't obey? Why would he give us regulations? Why, why would he call us to repent? Why would he call us to turn away from sin when he knows our hearts are dead and wicked and, and in love with that sin? Because God is preparing our hearts so that we can't trust in ourselves. He tells us that we cannot come so that we don't trust in ourselves. He doesn't just say, come to Christ, because if he says, come to Christ, what will we do, friends? If the message of the gospel is just come, then we'll look to ourselves and say, well, I'm a pretty sharp guy. I'm an American. I figured it out. I mean, come on. I got a couple of years of education, and I got a job and a 401k, and, you know, I'm gonna, have you seen what I drive, God? Okay, so I can come. So I can come. Our natural inclination will be to look at our own ability. But he doesn't just say, the message of the gospel is not just come to Jesus. The message is you can't come, but you must. But he doesn't just tell us, that we can't come, because if he just said we can't come, then we would be left to misery. We would be left to, to a, a sort of despondency, like we, we can't come. God says I can't come, but he doesn't just leave us there. He says that you can't come, but you must. And this is what Rabbi Duncan, this Scottish preacher said. He said, and I love these old, again, Scottish, British, Irish, all of those people, Celtic music, man, it just makes me want to paint myself in blue and run a hillside. You know, like William Wallace. I don't even know if he was totally historical, but the... You know what I'm talking about. This is what Rabbi Duncan said. He says that when we understand the true gospel, 
that the Old Testament prophets preach and that John the Baptist is preaching here where he's saying repent when we can't really repent. He's saying that it it shuts us up to faith, not shut up in the sense of, hey, you stop talking, but it shuts up all other doors, all other possibilities. You cannot come, but you must. You cannot believe in this king, but you must. And what it does is it closes off all other possibilities. I can't believe in Jesus, so he's got to be the one that does it. I can't have faith, he's got to be the one that does it. I can't stop this sinful habit, but Jesus can give me a new heart to make me love him more. And that's what John's final words are here that we, only, that we have from John in verse 8. He says that I baptized you with water, which is just some sort of little temporary ceremonial washing. But he, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So you must come, but you can't. But the one who's coming will make you alive. He will give you the very thing that he requires from you. Do you see what good news this is? Do you see what grace this is? It's not okay. The Old Testament didn't really work, so we're going to kind of dumb it down and make Jesus kind of touchy and feely. And if you just really want things to go better, then you can become a Christian. No, that's not it. He's saying you can't do it, but you must. So it leaves us no option but the grace and the power of God. And you know what that does? It gives all glory to God. Do you see how gracious? See, some of us, because we're naturally do-it-ourselves type people, we want to have a part in this. And even as I'm saying this, some of you may be resisting the grace of the gospel, and you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm not part of this? No, that's the glory of it. Yes, God gives you a responsibility, but he gives you the very thing that he requires. And that's what Mark is setting us up for. You cannot come, but you must. You cannot do it on your own, but you must. For him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when we hear, we hear because God has the power to open even the deadest ear. And that's the message of the gospel, the message of Mark. Do you hear? You still have a few trap doors that are options? Did you grow up in a Christianity that um, didn't teach this biblical gospel? And so maybe you've added Jesus on as a really good, souped-up moral teacher. But he's not really the God-man who saves and who is your only option. I mean, I think you can become a Christian, I mean, really a Christian, and, and still not truly understand this. And what it does, if you're, if you're a Christian, why it's so important as a Christian to understand this gospel is that if you don't understand that Jesus really is your only hope and your right standing before God forever, that, then you will rob him of glory and your life, your life will still be centered around to some degree your own ability. Friends, we all wrestle with that, don't we? And if you're not a believer, do you realize the hope in this? Do you realize that you cannot do it, but you must, and he gives, he gives you the ability to do what you cannot do? That's called faith. He gives it. He gives repentance so that you can be forgiven. Do you see the glory? Do you see the glory in the f- gospel of grace? Look at it right now. And look to Jesus. Well, in just a moment, we're going to receive communion as a faith family. If you are a believer in Jesus, you're welcome to come and partake in this meal with us. The bread represents the broken body of Jesus that was torn apart on the cross to absorb God's wrath for our sins. The juice represents his spilled blood that was spilled to wash us whiter than snow, the prophet said. And so if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of Crosspoint or not, but you're trusting in Jesus as your only hope before a holy and righteous God, you're welcome to receive this meal with us. And when we do receive this meal, what we're doing is we're remembering what Jesus has done and we're examining our lives. It's not just some sort of rote tradition. We're remembering the gospel. 
that Jesus did what we cannot do in rescuing us from ourselves. If you're not a Christian, I'm really glad that you're here. But it's really not appropriate for you to take this meal if you don't really believe it. You can, you can understand that. We're not trying to exclude you. We're just not wanting to see we love you enough that I don't want to give you some sort of false assurance if you kind of go through the motions of Christianity that somehow you're kind of in. You, you, I want you to come. I want you to keep worshiping with us. And I, and I want you to turn from trusting in yourself and turn and trust in Jesus. I want you to feel the futility of your state before God so that you'll be left with no other options but to trust in him. And if that's where you are, and even now you realize, wait a minute, I have no other options, but Jesus, he's my only hope, then then turn and trust in him, believe in him, look to him and away from yourself. And if you do that, friends, that's evidence that God has given you a new heart, that you're his child. And if you're doing that even right now, you're welcome to come to this table and receive this meal with us. But if you're not there, friends, I don't want to trick you into thinking that you're okay with God just because you go through some communion thing. And as we do this as a faith family, let's let our affections swell for the glory of God and the person and work of Jesus. So ushers, if you'd come forward and be prepared to serve middle aisle, you're... You'll go to this table here and outside aisles. There'll be a couple guys uh, that'll serve you on the sides. And we'll just start with the front of the rows and just work our way back. And let's all stand and let me pray and then we'll receive together. And as you receive these elements here, bef- just a moment after I pray, I'd ask that you just hold on to the bread and the juice. You can return to your seat and we'll receive together as a church family, Reynolds, will will, uh, guide us through receiving the bread and the juice together. Father, now as we come to your table and as we think about these words of the gospel writer Mark, as we think about the words of John the Baptist, Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts afresh to see Jesus anew. Lord, I confess that I I reduce Jesus down into his mere functionality so often. It's so easy for me to do that. It's so easy for me to see your word as simply a means to preach a good sermon or to bring order in a church or to grow a church and not to see it as the good news the only news. So Lord, afresh from my heart today, would I see a clearer picture in my heart of who Jesus is, what he has done. Lord, would you do the same for my friends in this room? Would you cause Christians to fall deeper into love with you? And even now, Lord, would you give a new heart to people that came in this room with a dead heart so that they too can love Jesus and turn away from themselves and his son. I pray these things, Lord, in your great and glorious name.